pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. Today we discuss vocabulary that I can't pronounce, and three friends come by to tell us why it's awesome to get a sore throat. Good morning, we're back. We are very excited today to be offering a little bit of a new section. One of the things that I've noticed over time is that originally you just got out there and taught, but more and more as our specialty has grown, medical educators have become specialized and with specialization comes language. Ophthalmologists come up with words like pigweculum. I have no idea why. But one of the things that you find as you talk to medical educators is that they use a language that not everybody knows. So I figured Pick knows all this stuff so that we would run through some of the learning theories that are out there. Now, there's only a few consultants I use my big doctor words with, uh, and I definitely medical education is not one of them. But maybe uh, we should be paying attention to that because uh, we're trying to give people very practical bedside tips for teaching, uh, but it comes from somewhere, right? Uh, so there's some kind of framework behind it. As, as you look through a lot of the educational theories that are out there, I think that there are a bunch that are very useful and relevant to us. So we thought that we would do a two-part thing where we ran through sort of the top five theories of learning. And as we go along, hopefully we'll hit on some of the other uh, language and things that medical educators talk to in, in various arenas. Yeah, and I think the big thing for me was uh, rigging out that none of these things is uh, the most correct or the most wrong. They're kind of different lenses to view, and you might actually apply them to different situations, right? Uh, so I kind of view them as a, as a continuum a little bit uh, of how our understanding goes. But lots of theories of learning have been proposed and kind of fallen by the wayside, so we're going to hit some of the more persistent ones we keep talking about. The first theory on our list is uh, the behavioralist theory. And this I do first because of the name of our podcast. See one, do teach one, teach one. See one, teach one. No? Okay, so the doing is part of the behaviorism. Behaviorism really has to do with demonstrating things and then proving competency in things, you know, language that all of you medical educators out there use pretty regularly. And it's, it's sort of very Skinner uh, in the way you give reinforcement for people doing right things. So you show someone how to do it, and then you sort of walk them through it, uh, and then you evaluate how they did on it, and they've learned this thing, check the box, they've done the competence. So it's great for assessment, right? I know exactly what I'm looking for. It's, uh, it tends to be objective, right? You either did it or you didn't do it. And the idea is that the educator's role is to provide tweaks to the process in the form of positive or negative reinforcement until finally you get the checkbox and then you can move on because you have learned the thing. You've demonstrated that you can do it uh, so you know it. Procedural stuff in particular works well with this theory. There are of course problems with all the theories, but there, there are problems with this theory. So uh, one of the things with this theory is probably the idea that if it's this uh, stimulus response kind of thing, I can do this thing, then you might have a learner who doesn't apply it in a situation that they have not been primed to apply it in. So uh, if they are recognizing that this is when I do X, getting a situation that is a different environment than X, uh, looks a little different than X, might not trigger the same action. 
it is in a way very state-based. Uh, I did this before on someone having a cardiac arrest. It doesn't mean that necessarily it fits with traumatic arrest or a patient not in arrest. It also sets you up for, I could do this thing today while you were standing next to me after we went over it quickly. Three days from now, I may not have retained everything, or I may not be able to do exactly what I did again today. So as we know, just because you achieved a competency doesn't mean you remain competent in that forever. So you mentioned that because of sort of time degradation too, right? Like that moment. But I like what you said about state-based because I was talking about external states, but there's internal states, right? Like uh, I was, I was stressed. Well. It was a cardiac arrest. Is there ever going to be an arrest? You're not stressed. Can you only do it uh, in the unstressed environment? Because then you can't really do it. So I think behaviorism is a really nice model that lends itself to sort of competency-based assessments, but, but might be hard to apply everywhere, right? Great for procedures and new things. So that's do it and watch it and competencies. Uh, the next theory sort of takes us in a completely different direction, and that's cognitivism. 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 So, so the cognitivist uh, orientation is the idea that um, uh, you're not just giving a person a fact and then they absorb it and then they have it, that uh, the learning is happening in their head and they're taking of that knowledge and processing it and reflecting on it and almost like plugging it in to other things is where the knowledge is occurring. So like a fact alone is useless. But a fact that you can uh, have in a matrix hanging in a big web of other facts and previous knowledge, that could be more useful. So this is a very sort of internal, uh, all the learning is happening in between the ears of the learner. It's very different than behavioralist that was right out there. This is in your head. And as we were sort of talking about this, I realized that, that as I talk about the learners and setting up curriculum and, and trying to teach, um, I had always thought about knowledge in sort of a big outline, but, but that's not how we use knowledge. That's not how we think about knowledge. And, and the idea that, you know, not everything that hurts in the stomach has to do with organs that are in the stomach. You realize that you start to have to have connections between all of these different disease processes. And that is one of the aspects of the cognitivist theory, that there are these maps where all of these connections between disease processes and learning need to happen. Uh, and the key thing about the cognitivist theory is that as you get a new piece of knowledge, it fits into this web and sometimes changes a lot of the connections that are there. So then you could actually have a new understanding. It could change the way you view a disease process. And the connections, you're adding them, but you're accessing them from different ways, right? So you have a list of things that this antibiotic treats. You have a list of things that this disease is treated for. Uh, you have a list of symptoms that could be nine things. And you have a disease that has nine different symptoms. Uh, and that's all sitting in this giant web. And you could draw a massively complicated concept map, but your brain is doing it uh, every moment. Another key aspect of this theory is reflection. So reflection is the take the new experience that you have uh, and uh, then uh, replay it and look at it and do an active sort of processing of it. And the idea behind the reflection is you're, you're actually not just connecting it, but actually comparing it to your previous experiences to see if that changes what you think. And I, I almost think of it as an M&M. &M. Uh, something happened, a new thing. We're going to digest it. And we're going to like think on it a little bit and say, uh, does this fundamentally change our approach? Or does this like sort of 
fit in uh, without a huge change. And so your understanding of something can, can actually change how you relate to all your old experiences uh, because of this internal processing. I'm a big fan of taking every new article you read, every case presentation, and going back and saying, how would this change my practice? And I think we do that kind of regularly. And I can think of times throughout my career where I have had revelations about the way I think about certain diseases that happened because of other diseases. Uh, the idea that, that I started to believe that giving fluids to asthmatics and patients with COPD can be really helpful because of its effect on preload. Uh, because I had learned a, a bunch of things about preload in a whole nother disease process. And I think sometimes the whole medical system changes the model, right? The, the blocked plumbing model of uh, interventional cardiology has kind of given way to the fragile plaque model of cardiology. The uh, idea that you're taking a new thing and seeing how it sits and plays with the old things is basically scientific research, like knowing the body of evidence behind you and saying, listen, this one new thing might not be enough to overturn the way we look at it. So we've got the watch it do it. We've got the think about it. Uh, what's our third theory? Uh, the third theory we're going to do today is uh, the uh, humanist, uh, humanism. Um, so it means that it only applies to humans, right? I don't think that's what they're really referring to, although it certainly is humans we're talking about. The humanist model of learning has to do with the fact that we as adults, we as people, find motivation to learn in, in lots of different ways. To me, the place where a medical educator runs into this most often is in modeling. Part of the reason that modeling works so well is you have learners who look at you, see you succeed by doing a certain behavior, by doing a, a certain skill, and wants to copy that because they also want to succeed. And so the, the idea here is the motivation is that I want to uh, be a more fulfilled human, right? That uh, uh, humans eat and play and learn and learning will help me sort of achieve my full potential, right? So uh, humanism has to do with encouraging people to become self-directed learners and to go seek out knowledge and, and uh, learn on their own. Uh, and, and not need people to sort of push them and goad them and all that kind of stuff. I think residents do a really nice job of being motivated to learn. Are maybe they're just motivated because they don't want to get yelled at? So hopefully, uh, uh, you know, I, I think people say they're motivated for not getting yelled at, avoiding sort of mistakes, being afraid mistakes will go down to patients. But I, I don't think that sets you up for continued learning, right? That sets you up for a, don't miss this, I'll learn this one thing. And it's not this sort of continuous, let me keep going and, and sort of uh, improve forever kind of idea. So I do think that when I was training, there were a lot of people who believed that unless you yelled at a resident for being wrong, they would not put in the effort to be right. Uh, and I think one of the ways that medical education and medicine has grown up, has matured, is that we don't rely on fear as much, I think, as we used to. We understand that there are lots of motivations for being smarter, lots of motivations for doing better for your patients. A lot of it is self-satisfaction, and I think we're hopefully creating an environment where Getting yelled at on rounds is not the only motivator for growing. And I, I think the idea that a fear of being wrong or doing something wrong to a patient is a big motivator. The, the bad flip side of that is that 
people actually have a fear of looking wrong as opposed to being wrong, which I would worry would sort of hamper learning, right? The, the biggest way you figure out you were uh, to, to change something is because not being afraid to look wrong, right? To say that stupid thing and, and then uh, realize uh, why it might not be right. Are you saying that there are no stupid questions? Only stupid people. Right. No, that's not right. I, I, I flipped that. Something. I don't know. So those are three of the learning theories that we wanted to go through today. In the next podcast, we probably will run through, we'll review these and run through two more, but figured that this would be a good section to start. I hope it helps. And I, I think I like this because it, I, I like that it kind of, uh, although you can apply all these three to many different people, I like that the behaviorist idea is good for sort of new concepts that it might not be old experiences with. Uh, that the uh, cognitivism is a lot about the internal structure, and then the the humanism is is sort of forever learning, right? Like uh, uh, learn to learn. Okay, we're gonna talk about uh, clinical things uh, and teaching around clinical things, and I thought we should talk about sore throat because it's just such a common thing. Such a common thing, and we deal with it constantly. Uh, typically, in this section, we start with sort of what should you prep the learner with when they enter the room. And we, we, by the way, have three guest speakers today. So introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Brian Swenson. I'm one of the third year residents. I'm Jill Moretto. I'm also one of the third re year residents. I'm Angela Morasco, also one of the third year residents. Great. Starting out, what do you prep your learner with? Your students going in the room. They got a clipboard. They're looking nervous. You're like the senior. Uh, listen, this is what I need from you. And so that's their approach to it. What's, what's your advice going to be? One of the main things I do when I send a student into an, a room before I am is to let me know whether or not the patient is sick and I need to go in right away, or if they can stay and get a history of the patient. So first I look over the vitals with the patient, and then I'll have them go in and, and let me know right off the bat if the patient is too sick to kind of dawdle for a bit. So in that case, you know, assess the airway. Are they breathing properly? Are they speaking to you? Are they tolerating their secretions? But this is a sore throat. Are any sore throats really sick? They can be. Uh, you know, there's certain pathologies like Ludwig's angina, angioedema, things that can occlude the airway and possibly lose an airway. So that's why you have to act quickly, uh, which I think is why Angela makes some really good points. I love it. So what you're saying is... That, that even something as benign sounding as a sore throat, and to a student, they're going to be breaking it down into one decision that we'll talk about later. To you guys, you're saying the throat is the airway. And we as emergency physicians, we own the airway first and foremost. So instead of going in with, uh, uh, you know, tell me if there was a fever, maybe you're, you're paying attention to all our usual ABCQs, right? Uh, uh, strider, drooling, pooling, voice, uh, trismus, all this bad stuff. And so Brian said like three bad things, um, and so you're worrying about. And if the patient looks terrible and they get you uh, and you go in the room, you look in the throat. So if you see something terrible, you're like, that's, that's the problem. What if you don't? What if it's actually like a pretty benign looking uh, back of the throat there? Sick looking patient, sick yeah. vitals, normal throat. I think you have to look at the whole clinical context. How is the patient looking? If you look at the back of the throat and it looks normal, but they still look sick as shit, you need to get a little bit more information. You need to do a full physical exam, look in the ears, feel the throat, you know, examine the patient, look at the skin. What are you looking for? Looking, if the throat looks normal, I'd start looking at the neck. Is there a big rash, a lot of swelling in the neck? Is there sublingual tenderness, sublingual edema? You know, is there a poor dentition that may lead to a deep space infection? So you're looking for 
Ludwig's angina, one of the other big ones, because uh, most of the times I see Ludwig's, the tongue is actually elevated, and you can see some stuff in the mouth like that. Yeah. You see a normal throat, but the patient looks like crap. What's our big worry? Epiglottitis. Yeah. And it requires something special, right? It, it requires uh, you to, to get the scope, to have a look, and all that, but you don't want to scope everybody. So, so that becomes a big question. So what I like about that is that uh, I, I certainly think there are people who are coming and from the doorway are going to grab you. Hey, that doesn't look right. And then once they're done with the exam, they're like, actually, it was okay. The throat looks all right. Like, we don't need much. It's just another, it's another sore throat. So I really like the idea that you should be more concerned, not less, if there's not an obvious pathology to someone who doesn't look that good. And I think that that's a great learning point. So there are certain diseases where the sicker they look, the more benign they sort of are. Uh, peripheral vertigo is the classic, right? It's the people gripping the side of the bed and throwing up are the ones you're least worried about. I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> let's, let's call it a Venn diagram issue. But yes, there are some... I, I, I like the, um, uh, the general rule, the volume of the vomiting is inversely related to the illness of the patient. There you go. And it sounds good. Yeah. All right. I use big words. What if you look and you see something? It's, uh, you mean some exudate and a little swelling yeah, other and big words. a fever and maybe some anterior nodes. You mean that? You're, you're, you're trolling because you're the, the, the list. I am trolling. You guys all learned the list. All the med students learned the list. What's the list? Yes, I was talking about the center criteria. That's what I was talking about. I don't even know if center believes in the center criteria anymore. That guy thinks everything is that weird cryptophagoleucoborum long word thing. <laughs> you know the one. Necro. It's got a necro in there. Necroforum something. I, th I think Bob Center really is worried about the uh, septic thrombophlebitis of Lemire's disease as, as a big thing. Which Whereas, you will see once or twice in your career. I disagree. If, if it's almost a one in a million, then I don't I've know. I've seen it twice. I've seen it once. There you go. So you got one more and the rest of you guys got two. I'm getting zero. I've never seen <laughs> it. Uh, or have I? Ah. Ah. So you look in there, and it looks like those things, and that means it has to be, the center criteria means it's got to be what? Strep. So all the med students are very happy when they come out and go, I did the list, and it's got points, and I know it's strep. But as a teacher, strep offers some risk assessment teaching and thought process that almost no other disease has. I mean, we worry about chest pain when it's above, you know, 1.7% that the heart score gets us down to. We're talking about a disease that, that in adults is uh, somewhere around 1 in 10,000 developed the rheumatic heart disease after strep. And I think that's what we're treating for. So if we're, so I think that's, that's a, actually a point to make. A lot of people think we are treating to make them feel better, um, which is sort of a difference of under a day measured at the back end. I thought we, we, we treat them to give them diarrhea. Also, one in eight or something, right? Uh, also, we treat them so that one in six of them can come back with another sore throat this year, which is a weird, right. my so immune system thing. that statistics that if you treat the sore throat, that they come back with another sore throat more often. I do not understand that one. I don't get it. Uh, statistical noise, maybe. But anyway, it's not good. It isn't, no. it isn't good. So, so then you get to uh, stuff like, what if they have a reaction to the medicine? So lots of people are allergic to penicillin. A lot of people say they're allergic percentage. Of that, a small percentage of them are actually allergic to penicillin. And the number quoted for anaphylactics, like, holy shit, anaphylaxis, is about one in a thousand. Still ten times 
the rate of rheumatic heart disease. Right. So to prevent a long-term outcome, uh, which EM docs are not terribly thinking about, uh, you got to treat a ton of people you to mean make... a long-term outcome is anything after lunch? Bounce back, say 72 oh, hours. Okay, right. That gets on my That's... radar. No, but it's 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 you gotta you gotta get rheumatic heart, get sick from it, maybe get a valve change from it, maybe die of it. But the trade-off is a life-threatening anaphylaxis in like eight or ten people. So that's bad math. You gotta kill like eight or ten people to try to help one. So I don't you do guys around this stuff. What are you teaching your students? It changes depending upon the age of the patient. If you're in the pediatric emergency department and you're having a child that's coming in with a sore throat, I'm going to test for it and I'm more inclined to treat. Because know. there's almost 10 times the rate of rheumatic heart disease and most rheumatic heart disease that's seen were people who had strep at earlier ages. So I think that is great. And, and that, again, is teaching about risk assessment. And otitis and sore throats are great fodder for teaching the risk assessment. So I love that, right? Uh, at ages less than 16 accounts for some uh, high 90s percent of all rheumatic heart. So saying this does not apply to peds, uh, I, I totally agree with it, totally accept. If it's a grown-up, do you even swab them? Sometimes. If I've, I've swabbed adults, younger adults, usually like in their 30s, 20s, uh, if they have exudates and impressive tonsils. So I just want to get this straight. All three of you are saying that someone comes in, they've got sore throat, nodes, fever, no cough, which I'm leaving alone. So you think they have strep. In your heart of hearts, you think <laughs> it's strep. Do you give them treatment? I think, I think like Angela said, based on age a lot. No, we're talking adults. Adults. Stop trying That's to dodge. Oh. We're talking adults. Nice try. In my heart of hearts, uh, most likely I think it's viral strep. And I will swab and send a culture and not treat with antibiotics but okay. in the culture. So so you think it's strep and you're going to swab. And if you get a positive, what are you going to do? Then I'll treat. Okay. What I've about never, you guys? I've never swabs. And I usually don't throw antibiotics at adults. I'll give them return precautions. There's some attendings that like to just treat, but I've never swabbed them. If, if I have a suspicion for strep, me swabbing him won't really make a difference. What if someone walks in with a positive strep? Do you treat? If the patient's really pushing me, I really want antibiotics, um, I'll have a discussion with them. But an adult, I usually don't always throw antibiotics at them, no. So you're leaning no, but you had threw in a shared decision-making, it might not help you much, lady, I really want it, okay. Which is awesome. So, Pick, give us your opinion on the world. I mean, I... Yeah. <laughs> How much time you got? So I also am with the um, impedes culture and carrier states they believe in in adults. I don't uh, swab or culture. So treatment is usually uh, clinical decision treatment. Uh, I don't really care about the center checklist if I don't think having strep makes a big difference. If I throw out the rheumatic heart isn't worth sort of uh, uh, the, the risk benefit profile. Uh, and so I will usually tell them, uh, I want to I treat you with medicine to make your throat better. Uh, and I will probably steer them towards uh, gargles, NSAIDs, and steroids. I, so, I, but just say I, this I, I, have, I have not treated a sore throat with an antibiotic that was not a PTA for about 10 years. And, and just so that we hammer home this idea, someone comes in and said they did my rapid strep and they called me at home and said, come in because I am positive for strep. You are... Uh, having uh, first asking them seven questions because I know my answer already, but I need them to come to it. Uh, how they're already feeling better, the Motrin totally helped, and do you want to take a week of pills when I could cure you with uh, a medicine now in two days? And then I discharge them with no antibiotics. No antibiotics. Okay. I have trouble when I look for a disease that I know have a, has a bad outcome, even in a tiny number of people, 
not giving antibiotics. So I will admit that if somebody is positive for strep, I am going to give them antibiotics. But I think from a teacher point of view, this is such a great way to get your learners to make their own clinical decisions and understand why they're making their decisions. The other thing I really enjoyed about this discussion is when people hear the word sore throat, they are immediately thinking strep, not strep. And that is everything they want to deal with. But one of the reasons that we do what we do is because it's not that. It's assess the airway. It's make sure it's the right thing for the patient. Any decision should be made with, with shared decision making. I think that sore throat, a simple diagnosis, has a lot of great teaching points. And I think that using a, a checkpoint list to decide if it's strep to push you to treat is weird. I'd much rather do the thing that you guys started with, which is severity of illness, right? So a lot of people are really sick and we're thinking antibiotics might not be needed, but they're really sick. So I'm going to give them every shot because that might actually increase their risk-benefit ratio. Things to try today, what are we gonna to teach today? We have three senior residents who teach all the time as the resident in charge. So I wanna hear what your teaching tips are, what are you telling your juniors, what are you telling your students? So when I have a student with me or even I guess a new intern, when we go see a patient, there's a lot of mnemonics out there that can help you with certain chief complaints. So usually following a presentation, we'll walk through a mnemonic as we enter in orders and we explain as to why we're ordering something, what is it helping us for, and... and Great. So you, you had mentioned that there was a, an AFib mnemonic that you like a lot. Yes. Pirate. Great. And by using this as the outline for your teaching, you're able to walk people through thinking about things that, that are more rare, but not to be missed. Yes. It explains everything that can cause a new onset AFib, and then you can walk yourself through that mnemonic. That way you're not missing anything when you're trying to figure out why this patient is presenting now in atrial fibrillation. And not always are you going to want to rate control a patient based upon what's causing the atrial fibrillation. So thinking about everything that could be the cause is helpful when you're actually assessing the patient. Love it. So today, uh, bring mnemonics uh, and memory tools with you. Pick, uh, how does that fit into our cognitive theories? So uh, this, I think, is a little bit behavioral. If I encounter AFib, uh, am I able to produce uh, the, the list of things to react to, uh, to look for those things? And uh, the use of a mnemonic is actually one of the ways that we know uh, you can organize information in your brain. So that's a little bit of the cognitivist as well. Uh, everything to remember, increase your memory, is either a pattern, a song, a story. Uh, so that actually fits really well. Great. Um, so I like to tell my students, try to walk in the room and not write anything down. Think of yourself as the clinician. You're not just the reporter. So when you walk in the room, look at the patient, listen to the patient's story. That way you can help synthesize your thought process and really ask those hard questions when you're in with the patient so you don't miss important details. I, I think that's great. I think that if you are writing, you are not fully processing. And maybe it helps you remember things later. And so there are some things that, you know pharmacy uh, names, and maybe some medications that, that scribbling is very helpful with. But, but if you're really going to consider the patient's history and uh, you don't think that that writing is a good idea, I think that this is definitely behavioralist theory because it is a, a growth uh, as you move from recorder to much more processing uh, it, and, and you are instructing the learner and, and maybe telling them how to do it uh, and then you watch them do it. You send them into the room, they come out uh, and you see how they remember their history and give them feedback on it and you're able to say, look, you remembered all this without writing it down, which is 
such great positive Skinnerian feedback. Ooh, big words. Okay, Brian, what do you got? <laughs> so when you're a uh, med student or a new resident, you definitely want feedback. It's not always easy to get it. So as the resident in charge, I try to give more feedback more on shifts, specifically for the presentations, the MDM. What did they forget? What did they include that was really good? Was it too short? Was it too long? And I think that helps them form a better mind mindset for things to look for for each chief complaint. And blending the other two learning things we went over, they all are bridged together with the feedback. So I think I think feedback is essential. And and there are great teachers who give terrible feedback. Uh, and so forcing yourself to give that feedback. Uh, and and I'm going to say from a residency leadership point of view that if you tell them. I am now giving you feedback. Weirdly, people take it differently, but I love that you're giving the feedback and feedback the way you're giving it right after a presentation is timely. It goes after very direct things that they can change and I think can be incredibly helpful to have people grow. And that sort of behavior is behavioral theory. And the, but the way you're uh, delivering it is also encouraging them to reflect on their immediate performance uh, and, and see that they're going to do it uh, differently next time and how it would change them. Uh, so it's also a cognitivist theory. So we, we what have... we've learned is that all the theories are used all the time. Which is what we said in the beginning. Uh, try to go out there and try these things today. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.